I've been enjoying a book called Street Food by Charlie Tavener. The headline is Hawkers and the History of London. Charlie, what does the history of Hawkers tell us about the big city of London? What can we extrapolate from it? I think what the history of Hawkers tells us um, is that there's a different way of looking at the familiar story of London. Um, I was really interested in looking at the long span of London's history, this big kind of growth from what is a bounded old style medieval city um, still in, in the 16th century to into the 20th century, where we're more familiar with this huge, great city of you know six and a half million people. And that's a great story of growth um, that, that London grows through and um, becoming the city that we, we know and love today. And I was studying the history of, of, of markets and street sellers, and I was realizing that actually they can offer this really interesting kind of bottom-up perspective, this kind of gritty view of, of London from the streets. And, and the big story I think that it reveals is that London, London's story over that kind of time, that kind of great growth is not necessarily as triumphant and, and, and exhilarating and fantastic as we might think. And in fact, um, for a lot of that time period as London is growing and transforming and becoming a great global city, um, life for most people remains very difficult and very dangerous. Um, no doubt full of kind of stimulation, but um, very hard and challenging all the same. This history that you tell, um, when does it start and when does it finish? Does it go straight up to the coming of the First World War? Yeah, the, the story I'm telling is about the heyday of street selling in London, which I see as um, kind of the late Tudor period um, from the late 16th century through to, um, as you say, um, around the start of, of the First World War. Uh, and that's a period where street sellers played a really vital role uh, in, in, in the food system. They provided Londoners um, with all sorts of food, both uh, basic everyday essentials, things like fish and fruit and vegetables and milk, as well as um, uh, kind of delicious um, occasional uh, kind of morsels and snacks like um, kind of pies and sausages and, and later on sandwiches and ice cream and stuff like that. Uh, and those foods weren't just little extra little additions to, to the food chain. They were um, right at the, the heart of, of how London London was fed. I'm, I hadn't realised, I mean, now the big thing is, shall we go to Tesco's or shall we go to Waitrose? But then, I mean, and now, I mean, I was in a fast food outlet yesterday and the man from Deliveroo came in uh, to take the stuff door to door. But at this time, if you fancied fresh oranges, probably the only place you could get them from was the woman coming to the door yeah um street sellers are a really important way for particular foods to getting for people in fact some of the only way for people to pick up foods like oranges as you say lemons um even kind of small parcels things like oysters that could be picked up kind of fresh uh, on the street um and there were lots of reasons for, for why this was the case but a big one was that street sellers were pretty flexible in 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 what they ever bought and sold they didn't have you know, the high fixed costs and all the difficulties of renting a shop or a restaurant for a very long period of time, but they could swap what they were selling, you know, on a pretty regular basis and based on what was kind of affordable in the market, what bargains they could find, and then turn that into a, into a profit to make their living. So that had a real knock-on massive benefit for, uh, for the London population. 
Now, I would have imagined that selling food door to door was a pretty peripheral business, probably not well recorded. So you as an academic going to look for the history of this thing, what were your sources? Where was it recorded? Yeah, well, perhaps the most famous kind of sources um, uh, for um, street sellers and, and street, si- street life in London's past um, are artistic ones. Um, there's a fantastic genre that people might be familiar with um, called The Cries of London, uh, which is also um, coincidentally, I mean, perhaps not so coincidentally, um, at its peak um, in the period, um, in the centuries, in which street sellers were vital um, to London between the late 16th and uh, um, early 20th century. This genre comprised um, visual prints, um, elite music and, and, uh, and more popular songs, which seem to kind of capture kind of the street life. So we can use those and, and, and understand what those representations seem to be kind of be selling. Um, but I was also interested in finding out who the individuals were and what their experience actually was, rather than just relying on the perspective um, of artists and, and composers and other people who, who might write about hawkers. Um, so what I did was um, spend a lot of time uh, trawling uh, lots of different historical sources um, from parish records through to court reports in which um, street sellers appear often incidentally to the matter of the, you know, what that kind of record w- was created for. Um, so you could have, for example, a court case uh, involving um, a murder, someone being shot um, in a pub um, with a firearm. And uh, there the witness uh, kind of statements include an oyster seller who's standing outside the door who was knocked over when the um, the uh, defendant was escaping from the pub. And, and we get a little glimpse into the fact that this street seller was standing outside this um, drinking house, um, kind of hawking his wares. He'd been there for a, for a long period of time. He was a man of long standing, was pretty, um, pretty well known in the area. So hawkers often appear in the, the, these incidental little, little sources um, and we can piece lots of these together. I was able to identify in those centuries that I cover um, more than 800 um, individuals, um, individual kind of street sellers who might otherwise um, have been kind of lost to history. They, 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 weren't, they weren't the main reason why those, uh, those records were created. Are these mainly women? Um, it changes over time. So that's one of the interesting stories that comes through the book is how um, in the 17th century, the street trades were dominated by women. Uh, women were actually um, kind of, kind of uh, in, in, in comparison to what we might assume about you know, the patriarchal norms of, 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 the old, um, of the old city. Women had a really important role in, in the buying and, and, and selling of food. Um, and gradually over time, more men come into the street trades. So by the Victorian era, in fact, men probably start outnumbering um, outnumbering women. And that's happening probably for two um, reasons. Um, one is to do with some parts of the street trades are becoming a bit more lucrative. Things like um, the milk business becomes more organized and sophisticated and men seem to take um, a dominant role in that. And I think it's also to do with the swelling of the, uh, the bottom end of the working kind of population, the kinds of people who are looking for casual and labor and the street trades are one of those um, parts of work that seem to soak up lots of the um, the poorer population, and that invari- invariably involves more men picking up this work. 
you talked about street cries and anyone who's ever taken any interest in sort of folk music, you know that there is this history of people singing their wares. Now, was this important? And do we have a slightly burnished, rose-tinted spectacles view of this? Um, they were certainly very important. Um, I think we do have a slightly rose-tinted view of it. That's a good way of putting it. Um, I think street cries are, when we hear them or think about them, inherently nostalgic. I think they, the sound has a, has a particularly powerful quality of conjuring kind of a past life and a past um, city. And Londoners in previous centuries were nostalgic through the cries too. Um, I mentioned earlier the cries of London, um, the genre of music and, and art that represented the streets. And um, part of that involved um, composers and, and, and songwriters rendering those cries they heard on the streets into music, into sweet music. And there's a process of translation that goes on there from you know, the, the sounds that people actually heard and in the circumstances in that those sounds are actually heard in, you know, amidst the, the barking of dogs and the clip-clopping of, of horses' hooves and the ringing of bells and the shouts of conversation uh, on the street. And, the, and hawkers had to cry over the top of that. Um, and then that translation takes it to sweet music that's kind of carefully and artfully arranged and it's, and it's always in tune. Because for street sellers, as we know, today um, in cities around the world where you know hawking is still a very important part um, of the economy and where people still use their voices um, to advertise their wares people aren't necessarily thinking about singing the sweetest tune every time that they, <laughs> they, they call out they're thinking about getting your attention in an interesting and catchy way and sometimes that might be with a memorable tune that sticks in your head but often it's just about grabbing the ear and saying look I've got these lettuces, they're this price, and you're going to come pick them up from me. Uh, but Charlie, you, uh, there's lots of lovely little details in your book, Street Food. And one of them is that the particular seller might outsource the shouting singing to a young lad who, whose voice hasn't broken yet. Are they called chirpers or something? Yeah, this is one of the little details that we find recorded in um, a really important source for street selling and also... Um, street life more generally in Victorian London, Henry Mayhew's um, London Labour and the London Poor um, starts as a work of journalism and gets published as a book. And Mayhew carries out lots of um, interviews and kind of wandering the city uh, and coming across uh, lots of um, street sellers. So picks up all these little intricacies. Um, and of course, the reason potentially um, for hiring a young lad to do your shouting is that the unbroken higher voice um, of the young lad um, should hopefully ring out, you know, just above the kind of the normal kind of pitch of the street. It's very clever. But then, I mean, there are other little tactics that people supposedly use as well, like um, banging a drum to draw up attention. Um, and the muffin seller famously had a bell as well that he kind of walked along with to to alert um, householders to the fact that he had his wares on their street. Yeah, um, it's not a million miles away from the ding dong of the ice cream wagon, uh, the ice cream van. And and you say there was a time in London where there were 700 sellers of ice cream, I think you say. And they're all, most of them, Italians. Yeah, it's, I mean, the immigrant communities of London play a really important 
role in in the street trades. Um, and the Italian community in the late 19th century um, are the, the latest in the succession. Um, one of the earliest um, generally being the Irish population. London's had a very large Irish population and throughout all this period. And then you get different waves of Jewish migration um, in, the, in the late 17th and 18th centuries. And then um, from the middle of the 19th century, Italians um, start arriving. And then they, they come in relatively small numbers, kind of initially, um, early on um, in one of the early censuses, um, there's about 40 or so ice cream sellers of Italian heritage. And then they expand to several hundred, but within, within a few decades. And there's another change that happens in that too. Those early Italian migrants tended to live very close together. Um, in the area just kind of north of, of Hoban, um, in a kind of quite a dense tangle of streets where they did all their um, preparation um, for making ice cream and, and taking it onto the streets. And then within those few decades, their numbers increased and they also spread more widely um, around, around the city and were becoming more established. But at the same time, they're still suffering many of the same problems that um, immigrant communities, new arrivals um, do, uh, often do, which is suffering um, discrimination uh, and xenophobia. So their ice cream that they were selling was not universally seen as a great delight, but was often um, seen as a potential source of um, kind of disease and, and illness. Right. Um, you say that the beginning of the the golden time is in Tudor times, and you talked about milk selling as being um, a major source, maybe of profit. Now. If you're selling in Tudor London, presumably your milk is taken around on horse and cart. So where, where just that one commodity, where was the milk grown? Where, was, where were the cows? Yeah, I mean, this is a funny story for me because um, I'm from a dairy farming family down in Devon. And I kind of I understand the nuts and bolts of uh, <laughs> uh, kind of producing milk and, and the hard kind of slog of early hours in the milking parlour and what's that like. Um, but that milk in, in Tudor times and in, in, in subsequent centuries too, mostly came from the immediate periphery of London. Um, London's edges were much more intertwined with the surrounding countryside um, than they are today. The boundary between rural and urban was much more, more porous and, and, and complicated. And there was all sorts of food production industries around the edge of the city. And it was particularly important for foods that went off very quickly, because in the era before rapid transport and before refrigeration, like, you know, before mechanical refrigeration, things like milk go off very fast. So the, the time between production, you know, that cow being milked in the morning and then perhaps again in the afternoon to the person that's going to drink that milk has to be very, very quick. And therefore we get in the um, Tudor period and, and in the centuries that follow, dairy farms around the edges of London who are supplying all those hungry Londoners, or rather thirst, Londoners thirsty yes, yeah. um, for their fresh milk. And street sellers are really important because they offer a low cost and fast form of distribution for that milk. So in some cases they can go and perhaps do the milking themselves straight into their pails and then carry that milk into their, into their, to their regular customers. And sometimes, you know, within within an hour or so. So when canals came, when railways came, how did that change the business of hawking? 
Yeah. Um, it's interesting because in the span of time that street sellers were, were vital to the city, things like railways, things like refrigeration actually come in relatively late on. And one of the arguments I make in the book is that um, their impact was only fully realised in the, in the kind of the 20th century. They were, however, starting to change things. So in the case of the milk trade, that's one of the that's the canary in the coal mine, I think, for um, how London's um, kind of food industries were changing, because you started to get um, kind of short distance railway journeys from from places like Essex, milk being brought um, very kind of quickly from farms into the city um, within a matter of hours. And that's just far enough away for it to be kind of cheaper to produce the milk out there in, in the fields and in, in the, kind of the slightly further away countryside. But it's um, near enough that those early forms of railway transport can, can and bring it in. And wasn't just milk that the railways kind of begin to change. Um, London's first kind of railway connection within the city was in the 1830s. Um, but you start seeing um, fish being brought from um, further afield. So suddenly the ports in East Anglia can take catches, put them on some kind of ice and then send them down to London um, kind of very quickly. So that slightly negates London's great advantage of, of being um, on the river and boats kind of rushing up up there. Um, and we're also starting to see um, fruit and vegetables kind of coming kind of further distances too. And at the outset, that doesn't rip up the food chain you know, entirely. Street sellers are very important um, kind of the market system of, of street markets that, that springs up in the Victorian uh, era doesn't disappear um, kind of straight away because within the city, hawkers and, and the small kind of shops that are also um, uh, important for feeding people still remain the vital part of, of, of retail. It was only in the 20th century where we get those more, uh, those things that we're, we're much more used to today, you know, multiple shops, supermarkets and things like that which which change things radically over the last t 10 years we've had great changes in how we deal with europe and that became politicized um but reading your book the trade with europe was absolutely crucial yeah we, we've already been talking about oranges and lemons and things like that and the, the, these are they were examples of the uh, kind of the more exotic foods that um kind of street sellers um, were involved in selling, which shows that, you know, there was a real connection between what was sold in, in London streets and markets and, and food growing in far, you know, much further reaches of the world. So on the streets of London, you have both the very local, you have milk that's grown around the edge of the city, asparagus grown in market gardens in, in Chelsea and, and Pimico and places like that. And you've also got the exotic, you've got oranges and lemons, you've got sweet treats that are made with sugar that's been kind of grown on slave plantations in, in, in the Caribbean. Um, so you've got all life, you know, and global connection very much there um, in the thoroughfares of the city. On the cover of your book, you've got a lady uh, looking at the camera with a big basket. And as you say, that photograph could have been taken at any point over several hundred years. Now, what was her life like? What time did she have to get up in the morning? Was it hard and brutal? Yeah, I think it was definitely something not to be too sentimental about. This was difficult. This was difficult and tough work. So a street seller um, like her, she's an apple seller um, who is um, kind of 
standing on, on, on Cheapside sometime in the late 19th century. She she probably woke um, before dawn. I wouldn't be surprised, depending on and depending on the time of the year, headed off to one of the, the, the big wholesale markets where fruits and vegetables um, were brought in from, from uh, orchards and market gardens and uh, looked for whatever look for whatever goods were kind of affordable to her and what she thought she could turn over in a good kind of profit you know, that day. So judge that based on her previous experience and, and the prices in the market that day, she'd load up her basket, then she'd kind of trudge from Spitalfields in one direction or Covent Garden in another into the heart of the city where she knew lots of customers were. And so as the city was heating up and getting busier, perhaps by mid-morning, she was in position ready to catch purses by um, with, fresh produce we now have uh food carts promising the joys of street food from a long way away uh i was in a, a market in edinburgh yesterday and they were offering uh local delicacies haggis and chips um so is the street food thing still alive and well or in fact has it come back to life yeah an interesting thing happened, I think, after the financial crisis of 2007-2008, and there was a, a new trend appearing on the scene, this, this street food trend. Um, market stalls, um, food trucks, kind of gazebos with little tables underneath them in, in various places, with people offering curries and um, stir fries, um, paella, all sorts of dishes with lots of global influence, and it started to become incredibly kind of popular, and it's and it's remained so ever since. And it's not just in London; it's spread right around um, the country. This trend, however, is different to the street food of the past. I see it really as an offshoot, in some ways, of the restaurant industry. And what was happening after the financial crisis was that. People who might otherwise have looked at kind of getting a restaurant, um, you know, getting started that way, thought they could explore their idea in this more informal, low cost kind of setting. Um, so in some ways, this modern street food is part of fashionable dining rather than part yes. of the, the retail of, you know, ordinary food that we kind of rely on and then maybe eat as a kind of important quick snack or that we um, take home to, to kind of cook and, and prepare. Um and it's, I don't, I don't really want to knock street food today. I think it's deli often very delicious. Um, it's often exciting. It's very, often very kind of carefully researched and, and well. And when it's well done, it's very, very good. But I'm interested in just showing how, while we've got a street food today, it is quite distinct from the food that was really important to people's everyday lives in the past. And the history that you write about seemed to make say when you write about london london busier uh there was more life on the street so have we actually lost something um is london duller than it used to be i think it's a complicated question and you ask a historian whether you know things are different now than in the past that one of them is better you're not going to necessarily get a straight answer <laughs> and i think if you kind of um, kind of gave me a straight choice and said, would you rather live in London uh, in 2022 or in 2023, or would you rather live in London um, 200 years kind of previous? I would probably suggest that I'm happy with where we are now. London is, seems to be safer. It's better connected. We can get around kind of fairly quickly. Um, as long as you've got, you know, if you've got some kind of some funds in many ways, it's better. And also 
talking of food, we probably eat better. We probably eat more nutritiously. Um, we probably eat with more variety. However, what I think London has lost in some ways in becoming and in, in, in improving in those ways is it lost a sense, a, an energy and a dynamism in the street life, a level of chaos um, that is the kind of the essence of fast growing and kind of fast moving cities. Um, and those cities that, that are like that, and there are many that exist around the world, um, you can go to um, places in Africa or Asia um, where street sellers are very kind of important. They have very kind of vibrant and, and, and rich kind of street life. There is um, there's an energy and a dynamism there in the streets um, that is far from easy to live with. And I don't want to um, kind of fetishize, um, fetishize that, but I'm just kind of pointing out the way that life is very much more kind of constrained in, in a city that we live in like today. The book is called Street Food, Hawkers and the History of London. It's published by Oxford University Press, and it's the work of Charlie Taverner. Charlie, congratulations. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you very much, David. It was a pleasure.